Can MLB StatCast service be the next leap forward for fantasy players? We'll ask Corey Schwartz, MLB.com Vice President of Stats, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 28th. It's show number 21 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. We'll talk with Corey Schwartz. He's the MLB.com VP of Stats about the new StatCast service, about early fab bidding, studs and duds, and more. And we'll have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Boston catching prospect Blake Sweetheart. In playing time, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Pirates' shortstop situation. And in our frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at speculative bets on Nick Martinez, Roberto Hernandez, and Tim Cooney. It's another big Tuesday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? You're here, I'm here, Corey Schwartz is here, and StatCast is here. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Tuesday edition, it's our feature expert interview with Corey Schwartz, Vice President of Stats at MLB.com. Corey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure for sure. Uh, before we get started talking about the big uh, picture in baseball, how are your fantasy teams doing? Well, I've got one team that's knocking on the door at first place. Everything else is struggling a little bit, but uh, in Tout Wars, which is the one that you know is my main focus, I've gradually started to creep up in the standings, and, and I still like my long-term outlook for that team. Our stat provider has that tool that you can use to project your standing using a couple of different projection systems, and I know you have your own. Uh, do, you, do you project your team to the end of the season to see uh, where you can pick up, or do you just let th- uh, things fall as they will? I, I use my own projections at the start of the season, um, and then during the season I pretty much just you know, sort of eyeball it. Um, you know, after playing fantasy baseball for 20-odd years, you can look at the standings, look at your roster, and get a reasonable feel for where you are strong and weak and where you have points available to you. So um, I really just use those tools during the standings just to get a feel for my relative strengths and weaknesses and then uh, just go for it during the season. I used to use the the uh, actual projections, and I do look at them from time to time just to see if anything's out of square with my own kind of eyeball estimate, like you said. But what I've come to realize, Corey, is that we can't give too much credence to the projections because they are prone to error, and everybody who produces them will acknowledge that freely. Ron Chandler says, you know, it's a 70% guess, and, and uh, so to, to think, geez, there's um, two home runs out in the category is a fool's errand because I could be 25 ahead or 25 behind. Oh, absolutely. You know, if you start out with one set of numbers, you're really using that as a baseline for your expectations. But if some player is projected for 20 and you think that's nonsense and you think he'll hit 30, you've got just a chance of just as good a chance of being right as anybody else. So really for me, it's just a, a method of comparing teams uh, and then I put in my own biases and my own expectations into that. But in reality, that's what everybody's doing. You're drafting players because you think they'll be better than anybody else thinks they'll be, and that's why you spend the money or the draft pick. So, you know, the projections really only 
get you up and running during the draft. But after that, it's all based on your own expectations. I remember when we were coming out of the Tout Wars mixed auction uh, uh, just before the season started, uh, there was three or four people asking, where, where do your projections show you? Where do your projections show you? And somebody else said, if your own projections don't show you in first place, you had a bad draft. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I've, I've had both. You know, my Tout Wars projections w- were very favorable, and they should have been because I was drafting players I liked. But uh, I've also done drafts where, my, you know, my projections had my team in the middle of the pack or worse, which shows that I really just didn't execute a very good plan. So uh, it, it, it cuts both ways. Since we're talking about Tell Wars, a couple of weeks ago, Corey, in the aftermath of the Kimbrel deal, you fabbed Jason Grilly, the incoming uh, closer, and you spent a pretty good wad of dough. I think it was 41 42 bucks, something like that. How did you decide that that was the amount you wanted to bid? What's the process? Well, there were really a number of things that went into that, so I hope, uh, since this is the Internet, I have some time to explain everything. Um, you know, first of all, part of my strategy in building any, any team in a mixed league is that I like to have a very strong bullpen. Um, but with Kenley Jansen on the DL, which I knew he would be for a while, uh, Mark Melanson with the velocity being down, looking a little bit shaky, Latroy Hawkins lost the closer job in no time, um, I really didn't have that kind of depth and quality that I usually do, so I wanted to get, a, get another closer. I wanted to spend aggressively, so that was one. Um, Two is that, you know, we sort of have a mindset when it comes to closers at the Fantasy 411 that two things have to happen for a closer to lose his job. The closer who has the job has to give it away, but someone has to come and take it from him. There has to be someone pitching better. Uh, and I really didn't see a real threat in the Braves' bullpen. Uh, I didn't think of Jim Johnson as a real threat, and he struggled, so I don't think he is a threat now. So I figured Grilly would have a fair amount of job security. Uh, and as far as the specific amount, uh, basically, I bid about half of my money. I was, you know, I didn't start with the full hundred this year because in Tout Wars you have a penalty for finishing near the bottom of the standings, and unfortunately, I did last year. But I figured fifty percent seemed like an aggressive bid, so I so I did that. Um, and there was a little bit of confirmation bias in there as well. Um, Francisco Rodriguez was named the Brewers closer right around opening day last year. They said, well, you know, Jim Henderson will get the job back when he's pitching well. But I looked at it that said, I don't think Jim Henderson's any better than K Rod, and I think K Rod can keep the job. And he did, so probably that factored into my thinking somewhat and made me a little bit more aggressive with Greeley as well. The aggressive bid so early in the season caused a fair amount of uh, hubbub and consternation in the fantasy baseball commentary at the uh, tout world was abuzz with the $40-plus bid. Now, you don't have to justify the decision, and in fact, you've just done so. Uh, I'm wondering, how do you react to the reaction, though? Playing in tout wars is a very public way to play fantasy baseball, and sometimes if, if people are saying, well, what a blunder, does it ever shake your confidence? No, no, not at all. And, and, you know, I don't mind people criticizing because there are different strategies that can be applied and, and there's no saying what's right or wrong. You know, there are plenty of people. Look, Derek Van Riper won Tout Wars last year and essentially punted bullpen entirely. So, you know, that is a very, very valid strategy. But when I won in 2012, I had an unbelievable bullpen. Uh, and that's really been a hallmark of every time I've had a really good fantasy team has been a good bullpen. So, you know, there are different ways to attack the problem, and I respect if people disagree, but, you know, ultimately I can make a rational argument for the way I do things, and people can agree with it or not agree with it, but they can't say I haven't thought it through. Our mutual friend Todd Zola, when I asked him about some moves that he was making, he, he said much the same thing. You can respect what other people are saying, but as long as you believe that the process you used was accurate, even if it turns out poorly, as long as you think the process was followed correctly, then you can live with the outcome and you can live with the criticism. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you draft a team in any fantasy league, you know, you have to have a strategy going into the draft, but you also have to have a strategy for how you intend to run the team during the season that fits with that draft day strategy. 
Um, you know, obviously you adjust based on the changing circumstances of the draft in the season, but, you know, I know I'm going to have a weak starting pitching staff coming out of most mixed league drafts, which means I better have a really good bullpen. Uh, and when my bullpen came out of town a little bit shaky, I knew I needed to address that right away. So when the opportunity came to do that, I did that. And, you know, the other part is I get Jason Grilly for 26 weeks. You know, it's not like I'm trying to pick up the flavor of the month closer in July. This is a guy who's got the job all year as long as he can hold it, and I think he can. So, you know, I spent a lot of money, but I think I'm going to get full value on that player. That's an underappreciated aspect of fab bidding, Corey. A lot of guys like to hold on to that fab money just in case something good comes along, maybe in June or July or August. But if you get your player the first week of the season, you're going to have him for 25 weeks contributing stats and production to your roster, and that's got to be worth something extra when you're making your decision about how much, how aggressively to bid. Exactly, and particularly, you know, we play in a mixed league. I don't have to worry about the trade deadline to get that, you know, guy coming from the American League to the National League or vice versa. Right. Everybody is available all the time. Um, so there was really, there's really no reason to wait. The way I look at it is you spend the money when the right player and the right opportunity comes along. If that means waiting until June or July, then that's what you do. But if, there's, if you can make a big move, an aggressive move that really fits with your needs, and if you can do that in April, then you should do it in April. You, know, you don't want to be sitting there at the end of the season with unused fab money, just like you don't want to be sitting there at the end of the draft with unused auction dollars. And Corey, I want to make clear, not all the experts that I read or talked to thought it was a bad play by you. In fact, most of them praised your aggressiveness and boldness in making the move. You also made another move that was somewhat out of the ordinary for Tout Wars. You spent a dollar of fab to pick up Addison Russell before he got called up. And in Tout Wars rules, that means you have to carry him for a week, and you did it anyway. And that, that was a little bit, bit aggressive and unusual as well. Yeah, well, again, you, you know, you have to sort of you have to manage your roster during the season to fit with your draft. I, I drafted a very weak middle infield, so I knew I was going to be churning there for a little while to find better options. You know, frankly, I, I really was a little bit unfocused during the reserve round, and had I been thinking better, I probably would have drafted Russell as a reserve pick rather than some of the guys I did. So he was a guy that was on my radar to begin with. And once I saw that his first game that he played at second base for Iowa, I smelled the blood in the water immediately. You know, again, I didn't think he'd be up as fast as he was, but I knew that was the plan to bring him to the majors as a second baseman. You only needed to see one game to know that because he's viewed as a better defensive player at shortstop than Starlin Castro right now. So there's no other reason to move him to second base if not to fast-track him for the major league. So uh, it was tough to, you know, to take a zero for the week and tout wars when you pick up a free agent. You have to play him. Um, and I had to take a zero for Addison Russell in my middle infield for that week, but I figured it would be worth it for the long-term payoff. Now, arguably, he gave me a zero for this week, too, uh, because he only had three hits and four RBIs. Um, you know, I was a little concerned they might have rushed him a little bit. He's very, very young. He's always been young for the competition. Um, you know, he doesn't have that one standout tool like Chris Bryant's power uh, or someone like that, but I think he's got a good all-around game. going to struggle at times this year, but if he gives me league average production, you know, let's say 260 with double-digit homers and steals, I will be ecstatic. And again, I got that for a buck as a free agent. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Corey Schwartz from MLB.com, VP of Stats. And uh, earlier this week, uh, I know a momentous occasion for you and for MLB.com. The new StatCast system is launched in the regular season setting. You guys had the system up uh, at the All-Star game last year, if I remember correctly, and some playoff games. For our listeners who aren't familiar with the system, what is StatCast and how does it work? 
Well, it's a, it's a combination of two technologies, really. There are high-speed cameras that are arranged along the third base line in what's called stereoscopic fashion, sort of like how your eyes work. They cross their depths of field, and that's what sort of creates a 3D view of the field. And we also have high-speed radar that's set up over home plate, and that's really focused on tracking the ball. So those two technologies work together to track every moving object on the field, whether it's the ball, the batter's base runner, the existing base runners, and the fielders, and allows us to measure all of their movements and try to drill down and understand the skills of the players a little bit better rather than some of the uh, you know, outcome-based stats that we've been relying on for so long. And what benefits do you see for this technology for fantasy baseball players? Well, I, I think the key is being able to measure the skill rather than the results. So, for example, if you see a player uh, you know, with a very low batting average, you'd say, well, he's been very unlucky on his batting average and balls in play. Or you may say a certain pitcher... Uh, you know, he's unlucky with the home run to fly ball rate. These are all outcome-based things. And I think, uh, you know, look, I mean, let's face it, you know, Ron Chandler at Baseball HQ um, really pioneered looking at some of these next-generation next metrics to understand performance better. And now what we want to do is take that one step further and look at the underlying skills and say, you know what, this guy's only hitting 182, but his line drive rate and his exit velocity, average exit velocity and so forth say that he should be a 280 hitter. Uh, you know, that's a player I'm interested in for my fantasy team. So it's taking concepts that we've understood for a long time and quantifying them in a much more detailed way than we've ever done before. Corey, this is getting a little bit into the weeds, but one of the measures I noticed on StatCast is called root efficiency on a fly ball, which is the ratio of the fielder's path from where he starts to where the play can be made uh, to the ideal path to get from A to B. Is the ideal path always the straight line, the straightest possible line from A to B, or, or are there algorithms to take into account the sometimes the need to take alternate paths? Well, the metric is sort of objective in its application, but in discussion internally, we've all agreed that the straight line is not always the optimal path, uh, particularly when an outfielder is charging a ball to make a throw. So the outfielder, you know, like on a fly ball, if he wants to throw to the base, he's going to circle around behind the ball and then try and get a little bit of a running start. You know, same thing fielding a ground ball. He may sort of circle around and then charge the ball to pick it up and throw it. So we don't expect that the optimal route uh, will always be a straight line, but, you know, the purpose of this metric is just to measure who comes closest to the straight line, and we think it has very good application towards pursuing fly balls in the outfield. Just so I understand, does the system allow for those other curved path optimal routes that you talked about, or is that something that's going to be forthcoming? Well, we're, we're measuring all of those movements right now, so I think what we'll need is, is to have a lot more data to learn a lot of things that we want to learn. So, for example, um, you, know, you, measure the, you, know, you talk about the curve of the outfielder pursuing the ball. Think about base running as well. The straight path is not, definitely not the optimal path when you're running, let's say, from first to third. You want to corner those bases and sort of run a little bit of a circle around the bases, but what we need is more data over time to learn that what's the ideal ratio and then we can say that this player is a really good base runner because even though he doesn't run a straight line, he runs the shortest possible distance in the optimal, di in, you know, in the minimum amount of time to get from first to third or second to home or whatever the case may be. Do you think it's going to work out that uh, the optimal path around the base paths is going to be a function in some way of player speed? That is, that Billy Hamilton's going to have to take maybe a slightly larger circular route to account for the fact that he needs to contain a greater amount of speed than, say, Billy Butler, who's plodding around, could go in a much straighter line fashion because he doesn't put as much uh, difficulty on himself turning the corner. Yeah, ex excellent point. That could, could very much be true. And, you know, one thing we've learned, I've been working for baseball for 14 years now, this is my 15th season, 
uh, is that everything you measure, everything you learn from a data standpoint just uncovers other things that you don't have and you still want to learn. So, for example, we'll be able to measure the, the player's, you know, uh, his route running around the bases, but we won't be able to measure his angle of lean just yet. So, you know, if you could tilt at 45 degrees as you were running, you'd be able to take a tighter line because your centrifugal force of running would be pushing you away, but you'd be leaning in so you could cut that angle. We don't know what angle guys are leaning at as they're running the bases. So that's a factor that uh, you know, I think over time we'd like to figure out how to measure, but it's still an unknown in, in our measurements uh, as of today. And that's, you know, that's the fun about these things. When people say, well, you know, you're taking all the beauty and all the joy out of the game with all your numbers, I don't agree with that. You know, we're, we're no. quantifying things that people understand about baseball intuitively and digging deeper and deeper to understand who does those things well. And, and to me, it's very exciting. And the, uh, and the flip side of it is, as we learn what is that optimal path for each particular kind of player, body type, uh, speed of foot, and so forth, there's going to be coaching advantages because the coach can then turn around and deliver back to the player. You know, when you run the bases from first to third, this is the path you really need to focus on taking, which means he's going to be a more efficient base runner. Meanwhile, the outfielder is going to be trained. You need to come in on this path, and if he learns that, you have more exciting confrontations between Ichiro Suzuki and Billy Hamilton uh, on a first to third play on a ground ball to right field. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we think there are tremendous coaching applications here. So, for example, you know, uh, leading off the bases, for each catcher-pitcher combination, there's an optimal amount that that base runner should be leading uh, where he knows he can get back safely, but he gets the maximum lead possible to improve his chances of taking an extra base. You know, that's something that, that can be coached. The numbers can help the players understand, and if the player's not taking an optimal lead, the coaches can work with that player and figure out why that's happening and coach them to improve those skills. I wonder if you could bank the turn at second base like a NASCAR track so that, uh, you know, you get a, a Billy Hamilton or a Billy Burns, somebody you could, re somebody you could really fly, you could bank the turns <laughs> so yeah, that you could really hit, the, uh, hit that second base bag going max speed. Yeah, I mean, a team like Kansas City that relies on, you know, speed and, you know, defense and base running, certainly they're going to want to prepare the track in a way that, that helps their team. Corey, do you think the technology might be putting an end to the current methods we have of using human observers to define what is a hard hit ball, a medium hit ball, a soft hit ball, and that sort of differentiation between a line drive, a fliner, and a fly ball? <laughs> well, certainly it will give us more precise measurement tools, uh, but you know, the metaphor I use is pitch classifications. You know, we know now that a certain pitch is thrown at 89.3 miles an hour with a certain spin rate and a certain spin axis and whatever, and we'll put that into a bucket and call it a slider. Um, but we don't really care that it's called a slider. We just want to look at the properties of the pitch. You know, classification is a very human thing. We take large buckets of information and put that into much bigger, you know, you know bigger buckets for identification so we can sort of track all of that stuff we have going on. So we'll be able to track, you know, launch angle, launch velocity, hit hardness, all that kind of stuff. And we'll call it a hard-hit line drive just because we need it for descriptive purposes. But from a research standpoint, we won't care about that classification anymore. We'll just look at the properties of the ball uh, and do our research based against that. So there's still room at the table for both approaches. They'll just have different applications.
I think there's going to be an interesting challenge for baseball fans and fantasy players in particular about how to calibrate these new numbers that we're getting. Uh, right now, it's all going to be a little bit exciting and new for us. For instance, we know that we, we like to have pitchers who have uh, strikeout per nine rates of you know seven or higher, and that 10 is a really good rate. Uh, just like back in the olden days, we knew that 300 was a really good batting average. And as we get these new statistics, these new metrics, these new measures, we're going to have to learn what the benchmarks are. And the reason I mentioned that is on Twitter, you mentioned the speed of a, a batted ball when Ioannis Cespedes hit a grand slam. He, the batted ball speed off his bat was 112 miles an hour. And you said that was, and I'm quoting you, absurd in that it was so hard hit. And I'm wondering, what, how do we calibrate that? What is the range of normal batted ball speeds? What would a normal home run batted ball speed be? I think the I think the hardest ball we've seen hit so far this year I think was 119. That might have been Arod, his one of his homers against Tampa uh, the week before last. Um, you know, it, it, it will take time for people to learn the benchmarks and learn the standards, but I think it'll come very quickly. Actually, you know, there's nothing intuitively important about a 90 mile an hour fastball. That's just become shorthand for a league average fastball, or you know, a 300 average doesn't mean a, you know. Look. There have been seasons where 300 was the league average. There have been seasons where not one player in baseball or only one player in baseball hit 300. So, you know, the standards will change over time, but we know them as shorthand. So I think whether it's, you know, root efficiency or batted ball velocity or spin rate, any of these things will become shorthand over time as people, people become familiar with them. My sort of mental rule of thumb is that anything over 100 miles an hour is a pretty hard hit ball. Um, and then if anything over 110 or so is just absolutely smoked. I mean, that's your, your really short list of hardest hit balls of the year. I like the expression absolutely smoked because that's something you know that transcends uh, particular numbers. But it is interesting to know what those numbers are. And, and eventually, like you said, I, I think we're all going to acquire that shorthand where we see this guy is consistently 95 miles an hour for batted ball speed as an average in a range of 90 to 105 or whatever. We know this guy can really hit the ball. He's squaring the ball up a lot, whereas somebody who's in the, you know, the 80 to 80, it's going to be just like pitching. Yeah, and, and look, some of it will be intuitive. So, for example, you know, the, the league leaders so far this year in hard hit balls are guys that you would expect. You know, A-Rod is off to a great start. Miguel Cabrera is up there. Adam Jones is off to a great start. You know, those are guys that are showing up among the league leaders of, of batted ball velocity. But what will be important will be, like the other, you know, indicators and rate stats that we've used up till now, we'll be looking for the outliers, finding the guys with the hard hit, you know, the hardest hit ball average who's only hitting 150 or 200 or doesn't have any homers yet. Those are guys you would expect to see a correction and see the, the traditional counting stats start to improve. Vice versa, if there's a player who's hitting, you know, 350 or 400 in the early going, but his batted ball velocity is low, you would expect to see that batting average come down. So that's, you know, I have to give the nod to Ron because he sort of pioneered these, thought, these, uh, these approaches towards don't just look at the surface stats, look at what leads to the outcomes. For example, a guy with a very low home, uh, fly ball rate intuitively is probably not going to hit as many home runs. This really just takes that to the next step and allows us to quantify things in a more detailed way. And and in a very interesting way, and, and of course it's going to get more and more interesting as more and more people look at it. Uh, speaking of that, Corey, the system is obviously generating data that is useful in real time, in the moment, on TV for, for the viewers to see and for, for commentators to talk about right after the, the, the catch was made. But what is the plan for amassing the data and, and aggregating it, and what will its availability be for analytic websites like Baseball HQ or Fangraphs and for individual fans like me? 
Well, we are storing all the data right now. Uh, you know, everything we track and everything we capture of any kind, we store in our database here. Um, you know, Commissioner Rob Manfred answered this best at the Sloan Conference in Boston uh, back in March, and he said, and I'm, I'm not quoting exactly, but I'm paraphrasing very, quote, very closely, he said, in time there will be very good access to the data. So uh, to start out, we're really just using the data in products. You can find batted ball speeds and things of that nature in, in uh, game day and at bat on your, on your mobile device or on your computer. Um, a lot of data is being published out, and we'll continue to introduce more data. And as the year goes along, we'll start to build a mechanism to distribute data and, and make data available to the public. So a lot of the specifics are still TBD. I'm not, I'm not hedging or sandbagging or anything, uh, but the commissioner answered it best, so that's the answer I'm going to stick with. Yeah, when the boss has an answer, it's always a good idea to say, the boss has the answer. Right. That's, that's my approach. I said, oh, my boss said that, then it must be so. <laughs> that's right. One last thing about StatCast. I saw an example at MLB.com. There was a ball hit by Leonis Martin of the Rangers, and the Astros' George Springer made a terrific play. He went back on the ball very straight and true, uh, made a leaping catch at the fence to rob Martin of a home run. And I thought the presentation was interesting because it made the play look like what we might see in a video game. We have the vapor trail of the ball's trajectory. We have the glowing circle around Springer as he tracks the ball back toward the fence. How intentional is the resemblance of StatCast to the way we look at baseball via video game? Well, I think the intention is to make it something that enhances the fan experience however they're consuming the game, whether you're watching on TV or a mobile device or your computer or in the ballpark even in time, we want to provide data in a way that, that makes it easy for fans to understand what's happening on the field and appreciate and enjoy what our players are doing. Um, you know, we, we here at baseball, you know, who work here, think we have the greatest athletes in the world and think we have the greatest game in the world. Maybe we're biased, but that's what we think. Uh, and we think this kind of technology can really help fans appreciate that. So when we see that some you know, player, you know, George Springer, reached a certain, you know, certain top speed, and ran this root efficiency and his vertical leap was this or whatever it may be, that really helps people appreciate what a fantastic play it was that he made to rob Leonis Martin. So, uh, you know, in the scorebook that goes down as a flyout for Leonis Martin, but you really have to give all the nod to Springer for making that outcome happen. And for the skills he applied to it. And I know baseball, uh, the commissioner has mentioned this. It's been mentioned by lots of commentators. Baseball has some concern about the age of its audience and the need to attract new young viewers. It can't hurt that uh, this new this new package uh, showcasing your player skills looks an awful lot like the uh, MLB uh, 2015 that they're playing on their computer. Yeah, you know, hopefully, hopefully it'll be appealing. You know, we want it to be something that people expect when they watch a game rather than, you know, clutter or interference. I mean, think about when you watch a game on TV today, you expect to see the pitch velocity, the pitch type, and a little strike zone graphic pretty much all the time now. Right. That didn't exist before we started doing pitch FX in 2006. Um, and now you sort of can't watch a game without it. So we hope that in time, through thoughtful presentation, people will expect a lot of this tracking data, whether it's tracking the fielders or, or showing trails on the base runners or whatever it may be, we hope that people will just expect it to be part of their viewing experience because it'll make that viewing experience better. Not that it's particularly germane, but I'm just curious, Corey, when you guys design the presentation, is that done in-house or do you contract it out? Uh, we do everything in-house. Um, we, um, the, the, uh, the displays online on computers and devices and so forth have been done in-house. Uh, and the stuff that you saw on MLB Network was in partnership with the network. So we're trying to create a consistent visual language so people understand, you know, red is faster and yellow is a little bit not as fast and so forth. And again, hopefully it'll be a consistent experience. So whether you're watching on your computer, on a mobile device, on a broadcast, uh, 
you'll understand that visual language, you know, just like we know that, you know, three green dots means ball three on the batter. There's lots of stories in the business press about how uh, successfully MLB.com is working with non-baseball entities to provide statistical and, and visual presentation um, services. And I, I can't help but thinking that a lot of the technology that's going into the StatCast would be really useful in other sports. Are you working with any other sports to, to uh, apply the technology in those fields? Uh, not at this time, not that I know of. I'm, you know, if my, you know, if my boss and, and my boss's boss decide that we are, then I suppose we are. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in a sense, at least for me, um, that I'm focused primarily on baseball. I think that's what I know best, and I think that's what I can do the most to help our company and help the industry. So um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all, but for right now, I'm, I'm very much head down on the baseball part of the business. And if not, uh, you could always go into politics because that was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching a basketball game the other day and f- not 15 minutes after I watched the George Springer highlight that we talked about, and they were discussing... Uh, Steph Curry's ability to shoot those three-pointers from all those angles and and with such a high percentage. And I thought to myself, this is a combination of trajectory, speed, release, consistency, and all these kind of things. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's not you guys that somebody's going to step up and say, let's measure the skills that he has that enable him to get this consistency in doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as I said before, in time, the more we learn, the more we'll understand what we what we don't learn. You know, what is Steph Curry's eyesight? You right. know, what is his physical ability to orient himself to different spaces? You know, his his uh, the degree of stasis within his body, so to speak, or uh, you know, proprioception, your ability to know where body parts are when you're not looking right at them. So, close your eyes and put your finger on the tip of your nose. How did you do that? That's body awareness and muscle memory. Um, you know, there's so much that we can learn about our players. Um, beyond what the StatCast system can do. And I think that that shows, how, again, how great the players are, that they're able to do these things. They're, they're things they're able to do that we can't quantify. Uh, so there's always going to be a thirst for more knowledge and more information. Uh, we think we're taking a huge step forward, and we'll learn a lot, but there's always more to learn. There's always more to know. And, the, and then subsequent to that, there's the whole nature versus nurture thing. Obviously, Steph Curry has basketball in his genes, whatever uh, physical parts of his makeup he owes to his father, some, some aspects of those. But he also shot five million three-pointers when he was six years old. So uh, it's a combination of those things. It's a very interesting field, and it's only going to get more interesting, I think. Uh, and by the way, you made me poke myself in the eye. <laughs> 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 you need better proprioception. <laughs> oh boy, I need something, that's for sure. <laughs> or may- maybe, maybe less, less of something uh, could be the possibility as well. <laughs> it's a little early for that, don't you think? <laughs> well, yeah. It's never too early. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Corey Schwartz from MLB.com. And Corey, during the season, we ask our experts to talk about some studs and duds they're seeing on the field from a fantasy point of view. We divide it into hitters and pitchers, of course. Uh, if you don't mind, we'll start in the American League with uh, a hitter you think is a stud hitter, somebody we should be looking at? Well, I wouldn't say stud, but a player I think is, you know, off to a good start who should be taken seriously is Stephen Vogt of the A's. Um, hitting for high average, showing a lot of power, and what I, what's really impressed me is how well he's controlling the strike zone with eight walks and ten strikeouts. You know, you've got to love it when you can get a guy who's eligible at catcher who's playing anywhere else. Right. Because he's just going to get a lot more playing time than anyone else who is playing catcher. Uh, you know, that A's lineup has been very, very productive you know, with a lot of no-name and lesser-name players, and I think Vogt can go on and, you know, be a 270, 280 hitter and give you good power. 
My number one sleeper going into the uh, tout mix draft was Stephen Vogt, and I got outbid, so he was somebody else's sleeper, too. Yeah, there, there's always a bigger bully, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, how about in the National League, a stud hitter? Well, you know, again, I, I don't want to say stud like we're talking about Andrew McCutcheon, but Yonder Alonso for the Padres um, has been doing the one most important thing he can do is get on base. Um, you know, he's a guy who had about a three fifty on base percentage for three years before getting hurt last year. He's shown an exceptional batting eye this year, not just... You know, 10 walks versus 10 strikeouts is excellent, but his swing rate at pitches outside the strike zone is just minuscule. He's really commanded the strike zone. And what I think is going to happen eventually, and I, I drafted him for a buck in Tout Wars with this expectation or, or this hope, is that he's going to end up in the number two spot in that lineup because they're so right-handed heavy and they have a lot of power but not a lot of OBP. I think he's going to end up hitting between Myers and Kemp in that two spot and could end up scoring 90 runs, which is, you know, a guy that I got for a dollar on draft day who might be a free agent in some leagues after the draft, that's going to be a great value. It is, and runs is uh, oftentimes the uh, overlooked stat that uh, can really deliver you some big payoffs in your fantasy league. Uh, moving over to the dud hitters, Corey, how about in the American League? Well, Chris Carter's been a dud so far, but I'm not giving up. Um, you know, he's hitting only 150. He's only got one home run, but, you know, number one, hitters hit. And number two, power hitters, particularly guys like Carter, are going to be very, very streaky. But he's actually started to come out of his shell a little bit. Last, he's got a little modest five-game hitting streak going, six for 18, and four walks against four strikeouts. So it looks like he's starting to do a better job of zoning in on his pitches. Uh, And we saw some stretches from him last year where he just put fantasy teams on his back and carried them for for weeks and months at a stretch. So um, I have him on a couple of teams. I'm not giving up. And if I had the chance to buy low on him, I think I might go for it. Chris Carter actually made a pretty nice stride in his on-base percentage and strike zone control last year, which everybody was hoping would carry forward into this year, and it's been a slow start. Uh, how about in the National League, a dud hitter? Two dud hitters, actually, because they play for the same team, and I'm not as enthused about these guys. Uh, Marlon Bird and Jay Bruce for the Reds, um, both striking out at unbelievable rates, not really hitting for power, although Bruce has three home runs, not hitting for average. You know, Bur- Marlon Bird has 21 strikeouts and no walks. Um, Jay Bruce, career-high strikeout rate, although a career-high walk rate you know, helps a little bit if you're in an OBP league. Jay Bruce is seeing a ton of off-speed stuff this year and not hitting it well. So you know, the only saving grace for both of these guys is the Reds don't really have any other options. Uh, you know, Jesse Winkler is their best outfield prospect, but he's off to a very slow start in AA. These guys are going to c- continue to play, but I'm really not optimistic that, that they're going to get materially better. I have Jay Bruce in Tell Wars mixed, as you know, so that's bad news for me. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, AL stud hitters from Corey Schwartz, Stephen Vogt, and Yonder Alonso. His duds are Chris Carter, Marlon Bird, and Jay Bruce, with Chris Carter getting a upside tick. Uh, let's move to the pitching mound. Uh, how about in the American League, a stud pitcher? Chris Archer. Wow, what a start he's off to. Uh, you know, .84 ERA, .74 whip. You know, look, we don't expect any pitcher to have a .84 ERA all season long, not even Clayton Kershaw. Archer's been very, very lucky with the batting average on balls in play and the strand rate, but there are two things I really, really like here. Um, the walk rate is way down. The ground ball rate is way, is way up. Those are really good indicators, and it's come from an increased usage of his slider. He's throwing his slider something like 38% of the time this year. That gives you some long-term concerns, you know, the slider seems to be the one pitch that most correlates with injury risk, right. uh, but the results this year have been phenomenal, and he really looks like a breakthrough pitcher right now. And in the National League, a stud pitcher, is there a Chris Archer? Uh, Carlos Martinez of the Cardinals. Um, you know, similar, similar to Archer, very lucky batting average on balls in play, very lucky strand rate, um, but the strikeout rate is up. 
His velocity is down a little bit. Ordinarily, you might look at that as a problem, but based on what I've read, it sounds like he's not trying to throw as hard this year. He's trying to not overthrow so he can command the ball a little bit better, and he's really emphasizing his changeup a lot more uh, this year, which looks like a much-improved pitch. So, again, between these guys, they have an ERA lower than what I would expect from Clayton Kershaw if you add them together. (laughs) I think those ERAs will go up, but do I think these guys can be breakthrough pitchers this year? Absolutely. And what Corey giveth, Corey taketh away, I have Carlos Martinez on my Tout Wars roster as well. Uh, There you go. How about an American League dud pitcher? Well, a dud so far is Rick Porcello with a 6.48 ERA, um, but I think that's very, very deceptive. He's pitched, he pitched very well in his first two starts against the Phillies and Nationals. Uh, then he faced Baltimore back-to-back starts, and they blew him up pretty good. Uh, but his indicators are pretty good. Um, you know, he's been very, very unlucky with the strand rate. Um, the strikeout rate has been very good. His pitch mix has, looks pretty consistent with last year. The velocity's not down or anything. So I think Porcello is going to continue to get better and be a mid-rotation starter. Not a stud like, you know, Vote and Alonzo are not stud hitters, but is this a chance to get a good, useful player for a bargain price right now? Yeah, I think so. And finally, how about a dud pitcher in the National League? Very worried about Jordan Zimmerman. Um, the strikeout rate is down. The ground ball rate is up. The walk rate is up. I'm sorry, the ground ball rate is down, getting a career low ground ball rate. Uh, and he's walking too many people. Now, his strand rate has been very, very unlucky but that's made up for a very lucky home run to fly ball rate considering the fact that he's giving up a lot more fly balls than he used to. Most of all, the velocity is down. That concerns me. Um, this is a guy with a history of some arm problems. It's not uncommon for pitchers to see decreased velocity early in the season, but looking at Zimmerman's other trends, that decline in velocity really, really worries me. So um, I'm not saying he's injured, but this is a guy who doesn't have a great track record of health, so I am very concerned about this one. I agree with you on that. Anytime you see a, a- pitcher who has a past history of injury issues and the velocity is down with no seeming explanation it is a real cause for concern hey Corey, this has been fantastic i expected nothing less and uh, you deliver once again uh, tell us where listeners can read or hear more from Corey schwartz thank you so much patrick um i'm on twitter at schwartz stops the main fantasy 411 account is at fantasy 411 and i have to give a nod to your countryman fred zinke uh, who does chats every Friday on the 411 Twitter account. He's, he's a monster on that. Um, and, of course, we do the podcast, Mike Ciano and I, every Thursday, and you can find details about that on the Twitter account as well as on our blog, fantasy411.mlblogs.com. And the podcast. And the podcast. That's uh, every Thursday, so we're having a good time with it. It's a lot of work, I know, and you're doing a great job with it. Uh, by the way, Fred made a trade. Surprise! Uh, Fred Zinke might be the most active trader I've ever seen in fantasy baseball, and he, he made one just the other night. I don't know he if made you saw a trade it. last night and got Jason Hayward, and when I woke up, he had made me two trade offers, both including Jason Hayward. <laughs> I mean, that is Fred Zinke in a nutshell. I, he is, I totally agree with you. Without question, the most active trader I've ever encountered. And a very successful player at the same time. Two, two Tout Wars titles and two second places in four years. I mean, that's, that's a fantastic track record. It really is. Corey, thanks again. I really do appreciate it, and we'll try to catch up with you again once more during the year. My pleasure, Patrick. Always great talking to you. Corey Schwartz is the Vice President and Director of Statistics for Major League Baseball Advanced Media and a past champion in the Tout Wars Mixed Auction League. Coming up, our HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Playing Time, and Frequent Flyers, all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back, let me root, 
Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. With the season underway, BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7, ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long. With features like Matt Cedarholm in the Market Watch column looks at the fantasy marketplace to find buys and sells based on league parameters and market realities. Stephen Nickran's Starting Pitcher Buyer's Guide column looks at early season surprises. And the Playing Time Today column looks at who's going to fill the roster spots of Adam Wainwright, lost to the Cardinals for the year because I drafted him in Tout wars the a's ben zobrist on the dl because i drafted him in tout wars and the dodgers yaziel puig whom i drafted in tout wars his rookie season and then dropped so i could hang on to trevor plouffe we have all that great information and much more like our performance validation in facts and flukes roster changes in playing time today and playing time tomorrow daily matchups team coverage our projections and game management tools everything updated daily to help you dominate your league And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time and frequent flyers comments, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Boston catching prospect Blake Sweetheart is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. The Boston Red Sox Blake Sweetheart is off to a fast start at AAA Pawtucket. In his first eight games, the 23-year-old backstop is 14 for 36 with three doubles and nine RBIs. Last year, Sweetheart had a slash line of 293 with a 341 on base percentage and a 469 slugging percentage with 26 doubles and 13 home runs. Since being selected in the first round of the 2011 draft, Sweetheart has established himself as one of the best all-around catchers in baseball. He receives the ball well and has a strong arm and a quick release. He's also improved his pitch framing and signal calling. Offensively, Sweetheart has a short, compact line drive stroke. He makes consistent contact and has decent strike zone judgment. At his peak, Sweetheart profiles as a 280-20 home run backstop, which should give him plenty of value even in mixed league formats. For now, the Red Sox will stick with veteran Ryan Hannigan and rookie Sandy Leone, but with Hannigan off to a 3-for-24 start, the Sox might not be able to wait until midseason to bring Sweetheart to the majors, and the reality is that Hannigan hasn't hit over 220 since 2012. Blake Sweetheart is definitely worth watching and is worth an aggressive fad bid when he does get called up. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Chris Maloney, Colby Garropy, Nick Richards, Matt St. Germain, Brent Hershey, and Alec Dopp have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage continues with Jeremy Deloney providing first-hand eyewitness scouting on prospects from the Cleveland Detroit, and Dodger organizations. Our call-ups coverage this week has included Boston right-handers Matt Barnes and Heath Hembry, San Diego right-hander Corey Mazzoni, Kansas City left-hander Brandon Finnegan, and pretty much every player who comes up to the show. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean changes in which players could be getting more chances or ending up riding the pine. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Pirates' shortstop situation. On the cover of a Playing Time Tomorrow piece this week on BaseballHQ.com was Jordy Mercer. Mercer was kneeled down with his helmet in the dirt, both of his batting gloves on the ground. Pretty symbolic of the way his season has gone so far. Columnist Brian Rudd went into more detail on Mercer's struggles in Pittsburgh in the column, and through the first three weeks of the season, Mercer's just 10 for his first 49, which is good for a 204 batting average, and he still hasn't had an extra base hit to date. Uh, Mercer continues to get regular playing time as the Pirates' starting shortstop, and he had a similar slow start uh, last season that he recovered nicely from in the second half. Uh, but as Rudd pointed out this week, he may start to give way to Young Ho Kang if his struggles continue. Kang is a 27-year-old import uh, from South Korea who hit 40 home runs with a 3.56 batting average last season. While that obviously won't translate over to the majors, uh, we hear that South Korean baseball makes Coors Field look like Marlins Park. Um, it is fair to say that Kang could have more potential with the bat and more fantasy potential uh, than Mercer, especially in the power department. Kang is off to a slow start himself uh, in just 20 at-bats, but he hasn't yet received regular playing time. Uh, that might change if Mercer continues to struggle, so NL-only owners would be wise to see how Mercer finishes out April and to see if Kang starts getting more starts. Uh, if so, Kang could be a sneaky profit pick uh, if he's available in your deeper leagues. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every Tuesday. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and ready to deliver big returns. Here with a look at Nick Martinez, Roberto Hernandez, and Tim Cooney is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. As your opponents focus on adding newly promoted Cubs prospect Addison Russell and outfielder Josh Hamilton on rumors of a possible return to the Texas Rangers, here are a few players that may be flying under the radar in your league, beginning with the Rangers' Nick Martinez. Though pegged as a four-starter in the Rangers' rotation, Martinez is emerging as a potential ace. He has only given up one earned run through four starts, including a 6 egg gem against the Angels last Sunday, where, for the third time in four starts, he didn't allow an earned run. Martinez's performance enabled him to maintain the lowest ERA in Major League Baseball among qualifying starters and puts him only one start away from equaling the Rangers club record for the lowest ERA among starters in March and April, with a minimum of 25 innings pitched, set by Rick Honeycutt, who allowed only three earned runs and five starts in April of 1983 for a .72 ERA. Martinez has greater confidence in his fastball this season, and it shows. Though not overpowering, he seems to be hitting all of his spots effectively and mixing speeds well after tweaking his mechanics in the offseason. In addition, if you were to travel about 250 miles south, you would find another pitcher in the state of Texas who may be flying under the fantasy radar in most leagues. Through three starts, Houston's Roberto Hernandez posted a 3.57 ERA and struck out 10 batters in 17 innings. You may remember him as Fausto Carmona who was a 19-game winner with a 3.06 ERA with Cleveland in 2007. 
Now 34, the veteran right-hander has allowed three earned runs or less in each of his starts against the Rangers, Angels, and Mariners lineups respectively, and perhaps is worth a flyer in your league. Hernandez is an extreme ground ball pitcher, and the Astros currently rank third in the American League for fielding percentage. It's also worth noting that three of the Astros pitchers rank in the AL's top ten for ground outs. Dallas Keuchel and Scott Feldman rank first and second, while Roberto Hernandez ranks 10th, just ahead of Corey Kluber and Jordano Ventura. And finally, we couldn't end without speculating as to who will replace Adam Wainwright in the Cardinals' rotation. While Marco Gonzalez and perhaps Jaime Garcia are the obvious choices when healthy, don't ignore the 24-year-old lefty Tim Cooney, who has 14 strikeouts through 17 innings in Memphis, the Cardinals' AAA affiliate. Cooney's sinking changeup could keep his ERA low if he's promoted. Just remember, all these frequent flyers are long shots, and some of these early performances are probably not sustainable over the full season. However, if you have room, adding Nick Martinez, Roberto Hernandez, and Tim Cooney before your opponents do could pay big dividends later. For Baseball HQ Radio... I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio on Tuesday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 21 of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our special guest expert for this Tuesday edition of the show, Corey Schwartz from MLB.com, the Vice President of Stats. Just after the show ended, I was talking with Corey about how many really good guys there are in the fantasy baseball community, and I'll tell you right now, he's one of them. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. You can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook, and our Twitter feed is at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and get the latest updates about when the shows go up. More importantly, though, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our regular News and Notes edition featuring Todd Zola. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.